This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, good afternoon. It is me, moi, Madam Adams. And if you don't know who that is, and you're just in from downtown Montana, me is Cindy Adams. I am the forever longtime columnist of the New York Post. And I'm on WABC Radio also every Sunday, 1 to 2 p.m. So you should always tune me in because I've been doing a celebrity newsy gossip column at the New York Post since George Washington's bar mitzvah. And if they don't tolerate me that much, that long, eh, pay attention. Here is some juice. This past week, I was on the front page with a story about my friend, my longtime friend forever, Ivana Trump, whom we lost. Here's what I want to tell you about Ivana. She was larger than life, blonde hair with extra pieces stuffed in, long eyelashes, extra fakes glued in, an East 64th Street townhouse, French furniture, sometimes fresh gold paint touched up the legs. I was at the Donald Ivana wedding. I was with Donald when he was courting Ivana. What was not to fall for her? What was not for him to like? She was a skier, gorgeous, blonde, international, stood out brighter than a lead bulb, larger than life. Ivana talked, joked, dressed. Go out, she'd have an orange handbag with matching shoes. We loved her. He loved her. Like him, she was larger than life. Ivana opened a new continent for Donald. It wasn't manufacturers on 7th Avenue, not the overalls schlepping cement for Donald's buildings. It was Europe, Paris, Sardinia, Saint-Tropez, a new world, new properties, new real estate opportunities, new royal titles for friends that would open for Donald. If you get past that thing where she told me she wanted, you ready, Paris Hilton to play her, other than that, she was smart. She knew how smart she was. He knew it. We all knew it. That might have triggered the less thrilling years. When Donald bought the Plaza Hotel, Ivana did the doing, decorating, dictating, directing. You had a question, she did the answering. The problem, she was smart, very smart, on top of everything. But maybe not always when it came to her husband. He was like many a big-time, rich-time guy. It's been known that their eyes and other parts of these guys are known to play pin the tail on someone new. We know, everyone knows, the news, TV, radio, even huts and African villages now know, he then began an affair with Marla Maples. I had the story. On my wall is glued a half-dozen New York Post headlines like How Sweet It Is, Sweet, S-U-I-T-E, like the plaza. It was a Marla Maples story, 
Another was, quote, Donald breaks a date. That was the headline. My headline, my front page. It all began, the story, with whispers, rumors. It hardened then into a, yeah, so what, what's new about that type situation? Not knowing all the details right then at the time, or what it was turning into, a few of us kept quiet. We knew they were hiding, skulking around together, keeping in the shadows, maybe doing what the birds and bees and even a real estate guy might do. But he was married, and he was Donald. Way back, before he married Ivana, when I was assistant to the president of the Miss Universe pageant, he was single. He managed to corral some of the candidates up to his room. Now that was a no-no. It was strictly against the rules, absolutely not allowed. But so Donald did it. That was the Donald I knew. To me, Marla was maybe just another pillow. So I'd heard whatever gossip was dribbling out, but I did nothing. My colleague, Liz Smith, broke the story. She broke it when Marla was by then fused onto Donald. Ivana, then fully aware of what was happening and what looked like could maybe be happening, phoned Liz to tell her to get her side of the story out. Ah, this is history. I then called Donald, and it became a volleyball. Ivana to Liz, Donald to me. Valentine's Day, February 14, 1990, when I spoke with Donald, he told me, We're just friends. I mentioned that I thought that was maybe an understatement. Then I asked him about his secret visits to the hideaway he had quietly booked at the San Moritz Hotel, where he and the, the Georgia Peach, as he called her, would do whatever seemed to come naturally. Our phone calls were daily, Donald's and mine. He began to unspool. He told me she is so much better than a ten. You can't believe it. He also told me, I will treat Ivana fairly. He didn't then know that my next headline was to be Ivana putting forth her demand, which was, give me the plaza. What he didn't tell me at that moment was that right after we spoke, he met with Ivana's lawyer. He was then saying, Donald, I will not hold Ivana to the terms of our prenuptial agreement. I will sweeten the pot. So I asked how good he planned to be to this then newly separated wife. His answer, you knew us both when we were dating. You know I've always been good to Ivana. I will always be good to her. Yeah, so how good's good, I asked. He said, look, I have great affection for Ivana. I always will have feelings for her. I listened to him, but I can never say he sounded teary. He also said 
that Marla, who by then had moved out of her Upper West Side apartment and was dug in at the San Moritz, that she was, quote, right now she's just a friend. Yeah, close friend. Meanwhile, a quiet divorce was already in the works. The lawyer spoke out and blindsided Donald, who said, he double-crossed me, knifed me in the back. He wasn't supposed to say anything. As we were speaking, an upgraded divorce settlement was already in the works. Donald and I spoke daily. He said, look, let's say that as you grow older, things happen, and sometimes a couple grows apart. It's just a fact of life. This is often what happens. This isn't something that just happened to me and to nobody else in the whole world. But another thing I'll say is that even though we've grown apart, it does not diminish my love for Ivana. Ivana, gorgeous, talented, smart, sense of humor, lots of love for and around Ivana. Afterwards, she lived well. She dated well. She shopped well. She married again. Not well. Italian, tall, handsome. It didn't go well. Ivana wrote books. She put out her fragrance. She appeared on the first Wives Club show. She'd get up 5.30 in the morning to walk her Yorkie dog. She did a March of Dimes cookout. She did a commercial in London. She had dolls. She'd arrive late after Curtin was up at some Broadway shows. She also sued Donald. Years and headlines later, she was seated far away from Melania at a Chanel fashion show. I know. She was courted around by some Austrian prince. She got invited to British prince things. One of her gowns was shown for the Prince Charles Prince Trust auction. She posed for Vogue. She was a guest on ETV. And, you know, it was odd that Donald's three wives all had names that ended in the letter A. Ivana, Marla, Melania. I'm going to take a two-second break, and then I'm coming right back with Lou Dobbs, an interview with Lou Dobbs. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Okay, so Lou Dobbs, here's a nice simple question for you. What has happened to our country? Oh, Cindy, uh, of all the questions, uh, this is the one that we're all asking. And what's happening is uh, we are getting uh, we are getting back uh, just a tremendous wave uh, of uh, authoritarianism from our government. The American people now, much of our government has apparently decided that the American people are their enemies. Uh, When we look at the number of crimes that have been committed, uh, that have been investigated by the FBI and the Justice Department, uh, political persecution of Trump, 
uh, for the course of five years. Uh, it goes on and on without any without any evidence whatsoever of wrongdoing on his part, and immense evidence of wrongdoing on the part of our FBI and the Justice Department. It is a government brimming with political corruption, and that is what is happening to our country. And with this Marxist, dim-led president uh, in, in the White House, uh, every policy that he is uh, following, uh, announce, uh, announcing, uh, and, and pursuing, I, I defy anyone to tell me one policy, one major policy of this administration that is in the interest of the nation and the American people. I can't find that policy. But I can tell you that that border is wide open. Illegal immigration is running rampant. We're talking about already 2 million illegal immigrants in this country in his first 18 months in office. Think about this. This man hasn't been in office. Cindy, he hasn't been in office two years and the damage he's done. Inflation is now in double digits. Uh, the, the middle class of this country is getting pummeled uh, by this uh, the moronic economic policies of this president. His foreign policies... Uh, I'm, I just hope we'll get no more uh, Americans killed. Uh, but I, I, I worry deeply about that because he's moved the 102,000 of our troops into the eastern flank of Europe. What he thinks he's going to do with those troops uh, troubles me mightily. Do you think there's any remote possibility that he wants to run or limp again? I think his pride is is forestalling him in any way being directed to the American people. He doesn't have a very good track record on that, does he? Uh, he we're looking at a number that is outrageous. We're talking about 18% of his party supports him for re-election right now. 18%! Uh, <laughs> eight out of ten Americans say the country's headed in the wrong direction. This... This means that there is going to be a landslide, a wave, a tsunami in November. The Democrats are about to take a beating like they've never imagined nor experienced in the course of the past uh, year, the last decade at least, uh, in, uh, in American politics. It's going to be disastrous for them. Do you think... I mean, it's not possible because I'm getting nervous. Is there any possibility that Kamala, who's bordering on an idiot, could she run? Well, she could run, but uh, she she can't speak. There, the, the woman has. Everybody talks about her word salad. I think they're being kind. Uh, this is this is a woman who has no knowledge base. She has no uh, spirit. Uh, no, no way in which to articulate an idea if she ever were to one were to ever occur to her. It is. I don't know that there has ever been in the history of the American people a uh, another uh, example of two the two top officials in our government who are so inept. Uh, a president who is impaired as well as inept and a vice president who one cannot even imagine how she got there. It's just, it's unthinkable. I mean, These it's all over. This it's, country. it's all over. Politics, everyone in Albany is on parole. So, I mean, who the <laughs> hell knows anything about our government? Can you tell me now, I mean, speaking to Lou Dobbs, uh, maybe I can get some intellect here. Can you give me an opinion on January 6th? What's going to happen here with him? 
Well, whatever does happen uh, that is envisioned by the Democrat, uh, the Marxist Democrats who are running that Soviet-style uh, operation, uh, it's going to amount to nothing. These are the same, very same cast of characters that brought us the, the first special counsel. Three years of FBI investigation, uh, two almost two years of special counsel investigation, and then two impeachments. These are, you're talking about morons? These people are morons. I mean, think about Jamie Raskin, uh, Adam Schiff. These, oh, these men yeah. don't have enough integrity to fill a thimble. It, it is outrageous. And the national left-wing corporate media, really, they're tolerating this kind of conduct on the part of any party. But the Democratic Party, uh, this is a, a party bereft of conscience or principle. Well, too bad you have no opinions. That's the real difficulty speaking to you, Lou. So tell me now, we all we we understand what's going to happen, but your concept of the coming election. I, I believe that the Republicans right now, they have also the great a great capacity uh, to put together a leadership team that will lead them into uh, will allow them to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. But barring that, I look for the, there to be at least a 40-seat a, a uh, gain in the House of Representatives uh, and at least four or five seats in the Senate. There is just no way the American people are going to tolerate what this administration, the Democrat Party, led by Marxist Dems, are doing uh, to, to 300 million Americans. Uh, they, are, they are screwing up public education. They've screwed it up. They're indoctrinating children instead of educating children. We have a, a, an entire wing of the Democratic Party that wants to talk sex with five to nine-year-olds uh, in, in, in public schools instead of educate them. It is, it's, it's devastating what we are watching happen to this country. Okay. What is Lou Dobbs doing now if we can't get you on television. What are you doing? Where well, are you? I, well, I'm on uh, a great podcast called The Great America Show, and uh, it's on uh, all of the major podcast platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, you name it. Uh, and uh, I'm having a, a wonderful time uh, doing that podcast. Uh, it's available five times a, a week, uh, five days a week. And uh, I have to tell you, it's just a, a great, great uh, time to be uh, engaged in the arena, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. So now, as long as I'm brain-picking, now that we have managed to kill off our country, can you help our city? Can you tell us about this, I hate to even mention the name mayor, but can mm -hmm. you tell us about our city? How do we help it? Uh, well, the only help that I, I can imagine is at some point the city awakens to what kind of uh, leadership they keep voting in. The Democrat Party has a huge margin, seven, eight to one in New York City, and they keep electing socialists and, uh, and the most uh, ignorant uh, leaders imaginable. Uh, Eric Adams, uh, what is the big job that he ever held that qualified him none, to be none, mayor? None, 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 none. Yeah, he was a desk lieutenant. Then he 
signed an application, and he became a captain. He's done nothing. Zero. I checked it out. Nothing. Continue yeah, and at on, some though. point, the people of New York City have got to decide uh, that they want to survive, because this city is not going to survive another Bill de Blasio and Eric Adams. Uh, they are tearing that city to pieces. It's the same group of people, the Marxist Dems, the hard left of the Democrat Party, who are know-nothings, do-nothings, and all they are are ideologues and indifferent to to the outcome, is when it's, whether it's the American people or the American nation. It, it's just devastating. They're, the American people have got to grow up and take seriously the responsibility uh, to know what is happening. Uh, there is just no way to be a bystander anymore in our society, because the the only other option is to watch the republic crumble around us. Well, aren't we on the way to becoming a socialist nation? I think we're we're more than halfway there. Uh, I I worry less about becoming a, a socialist nation, frankly, Cindy, than I do about becoming a Marxist, authoritarian, totalitarian country. Yeah. Uh, this government right now is being run by uh, a, a group of people. The puppet masters of this president mean to have their way. When there isn't even a vote on illegal immigration, there isn't even a vote on the open border. No one seems to be participating in any kind of public discussion or debate about whether we should have troops uh, in Europe uh, ready to go up against the, the Russian army. Uh, we and a president who has decided apparently to give give uh, Zelensky and Ukraine just enough money to to uh, to lose slowly to Vladimir Putin instead of stand up uh, for the country. Uh, it is a, a difficult time for all of us, and the government that we have is far from rational, and our politics is far from rational. This president can't even find the men's room in the in the in the White House. What would happen if? If and when the Republicans take over, what will happen with Hunter, the Hunter Biden story? Well, Hunter Biden's been, as you know, under investigation for four years. Uh, they say it's for uh, tax evasion uh, yeah. for yeah. his uh, federal taxes. Yet we already have evidence of his corruption, his political corruption that involves the entire Biden crime family. We have that that evidence in front of us. The federal government has had it. The Justice Department had it for a year, almost a year before the second debate of the 2020 presidential election and didn't didn't move on it. It's outrageous what our government is doing and how they have aligned themselves with the Marxist Dems of the Democratic Party. Uh, so I expect that there will be nothing happen to Hunter Biden, and I expect that the national media will do nothing uh, to report on the on the travesty that is our government right now. Okay. We're hearing about Donald, that he's going to run. He may run. He will run. Who he, He's not sure he's going to run. What about Donald running? Your opinion? My opinion is right now it is uh, at best a 50-50 proposition. I know he says he's made his mind up. Uh, he's made a decision. Uh, most people are taking that to mean that he will run. I, I truly believe that it that that decision, whatever it is, uh, is going to remain uh, a, 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 a reserved one for some time. I, I don't think he has, in point of fact, made up his mind. I don't see any sense of organization around him. He hasn't built up a group uh, for transition, uh, hasn't built up a group uh, for 
uh, talent search for those who would uh, people his uh, administration. He can't do what he did in 2016 because the country won't survive that, and neither will he. Uh, he's got to have the best people around him possible. And that means an effort that is going to be at least two years in the making to staff that White House, to staff the executive branches, and to put together a cadre of the best and finest uh, people we can have to serve uh, the president. Uh, and he has to have that. Right now, I don't see any sign of that organization, that initiative, uh, in that approach. And until I do, I'm going to take less than seriously his uh, statement about having made a decision, at least a decision to become a candidate for president. Okay, and my decision is it's always boring to talk to you. You never have an opinion. That's well, thank you, thing. Cindy. That's the thing. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I love you. I adore you. And thank you for coming on for me. Thanks and you lot, know love. I love and adore you, Cindy. Thanks so thank much. You, I appreciate it. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. So, Seth Pinsky, the CEO of the 92nd Street Y. When did you become CEO? I had the great good fortune and the great timing of becoming CEO of the 92nd Street Y in January of 2020. Why? Who were you? I previously had worked in real estate development and before that had uh, been the president of the New York City Economic Development Corporation under Mayor Bloomberg. Um, and I think uh, the reason I was selected is because um, of my involvement with the city over the years, my involvement with not-for-profits in that role, and uh, also my longstanding love of arts, culture, and Jewish programming, all of which are critical uh, elements of the 92nd Street Y. The 92nd Street Y is like the Statue of Liberty. It's one of the very special places. But why is such a magnificent place nowhere else well, it's a great question. And, you know, since coming here in 2020, it's a question I've often asked myself. And where I've come out on it is that there really is no place anywhere else on earth like the 92nd Street Y. We're not a university. We're not a community center. We're not a cultural center. We're kind of all of these things, but we're also more. And I think that the reason why we're so unique is that we operate at the intersection of three strong and distinctive traditions. First, we're a distinctly American institution. We believe that people can improve themselves and their station in life, and we enrich lives every day with the aim of, of achieving that goal. Second, we're a distinctly New York institution. I would argue that we're the quintessential New York institution. We're a beehive of energy with our doors open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and packed into our crowded campus, we offer all sorts of programs and services from arts and culture to programming for kids to programming for senior citizens to a gym and even a residence. And then finally, we're a distinctly Jewish institution. We were founded by German Jewish businessmen with an original goal of serving newly arrived Eastern European Jews, and we now serve people of every faith and background and persuasion. And the 92nd Street Y continues to honor the Jewish values on which we were founded. We have a strong emphasis on education. We have a strong belief in the importance of accepting and welcoming the other, and a strong belief that all of us are better off and more secure if the bonds of community are strengthened. Okay, all of that sounds great. 
and I understand why we're not going to have places like that in downtown Utah, but we got a lot of places. Why only New York? Well, New York is is a special place. You know, it's it's a city that brings people together from all over and, and forces them to learn how to live with one another and communicate with one another and ultimately to appreciate one another. And I think these are all the, the values that we at the 92nd Street Y have tried for our 150 almost year history um, to foster. Okay. Well, I'm not so sure how we're all getting on at this moment. <laughs> but, thank you, but thank you for the idea. How do you come become a member? So we don't really have membership at the 92nd Street Y. We um, uh, have the ability for people to make donations, and and to if they do at certain levels, they they get certain benefits. And we have memberships to some of our programs, like our senior program and our gym. Um, but we welcome people from all over New York, um, from all over the country, and indeed from all over the world to all of our programs. Um, and all you have to do is go to 92ny.org, and you can look at any program and anything that's of interest to you. You can buy a ticket and come and participate. Okay, Seth. So tell me, what are the classes and what are the events for people listening in who aren't members or, or who aren't coming? Well, this is one of the things that makes the 92nd Street Y such a special place is we have so many different kinds of events that are going on. Right now, for example, we're in the thick of camp season. We have almost 2,000 kids coming into our building every day for our in-city camps, and we have over 600 kids going up to our camp in Rockland County. We have a senior center, which after the pandemic is now coming back to life, and we have hundreds of seniors who join us for programming in person and online, our art schools from fine arts to ceramics to jewelry making to dance to music to musical theater, they're all active and busy. And our online ed adult education platform, which uh, we just launched uh, in April and can be found uh, at roundtable.org, it's, uh, it's called Roundtable, includes courses that are taught by professors from the best universities in the world, from chefs who are James Beard finalists, Pulitzer Prize winning authors, and even General David Petraeus will be teaching a class. And in terms of stage events, next week is our annual Jazz in July Festival. We'll be featuring Bill Sharlap, Joshua Redman, Kenny Barron, and the list goes on. On Sunday, Alex Edelman is going to be on our stage in conversation with Stephen Colbert. Um, and on Wednesday, we'll be featuring a conversation with Chef Paul Hollywood. Um, for those of your listeners who know, okay. he's from the okay, okay. Great British Breakoff. And the, and the list goes on. What about because of the pandemic, are we not getting a lot of seniors who are coming in because they have nothing else to do and nothing to fill their houses? Is that not the case at this moment? That's certainly been part of uh, the experience. We're definitely seeing our seniors coming back. Um, the pandemic, as you know, was particularly difficult for them. Fortunately, when we migrated all of our programming online, which we did when the pandemic hit, we also were able to migrate our um, senior programming online. And um, it was incredibly gratifying to see the impact that that programming had even remotely on these people who were completely isolated for two years. And now that we've reopened the building, we're seeing between 2,500 and 3,000 people on an average weekday coming back. And many of those, in fact, are senior citizens, although they're, they're people of all ages, of course. Yeah, but I've well. seen, I, I know that I have a lot of senior friends 
or, or their grandmothers or their mothers or their parents. And I know that they're all coming there because they have nothing else to fill the time. Listen, tell me about some of the old days. I mean, wasn't this a, a time or a place for Alvin Ailey and Kurt Vonnegut and those ple people? Am I yeah? Am I, no, you're you're absolutely right, okay. and it, it's one of the okay. things that really makes the 92nd Street Y so special. You've got stories about people who would ultimately become famous um, and were involved in the 92nd Street Y before they became famous. Emma Lazarus, who, as you know, wrote the poem, uh, The New Colossus, about the Statue of Liberty, taught English here. Zero Mostel, the great actor, taught painting here uh, early in her career before she was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave uh, a, a lecture here. But in terms of um, uh, important premieres and, and events that introduced uh, great artists and, and their works. You've got uh, Dylan Thomas, for example, premiered um, under Milkwood on our stage. Uh, Truman Capote debuted in Cold Blood. Kurt Vonnegut, whom you mentioned, premiered uh, Breakfast of Champions. I think that he said when he when he announced, uh, started to read it, that not even his wife had seen it before. And in the dance world, which you alluded to, um, we really were the birthplace of, of modern dance, or one of the, the key birthplaces of modern dance. Martha Graham, Agnes DeMille taught here. Paul De Taylor premiered and, and really made his uh, first mark on our stage. And then there was, as you alluded to, a young African-American choreographer and dancer who at the time wasn't welcomed on the stage of any other um, performance space in the city, came to the 92nd Street Y, eventually developed and premiered a, a piece called Revelations, which turned out to be one of the most iconic American dance pieces of all times. And that person, of course, was Alvin Ailey and went on to great things. So it's we have a long history of association with great artists, and it's something we're very proud of. Okay, I've been asked by the, by, by the 92nd Street Y to interview or MC when you have some event. For whatever the reason, I could not do it at whatever time they asked. What what does that mean? You have an MC. Do you, what do you do with the MC? Do you hire them? Do you pay them? How do you do it? What is an MC supposed to do? So it's a it's a great question. So um, we have a number of different performances that appear on our stages. We do dance. We do music. We do uh, musical theater. Um, and in addition to that, um, we're very well known for our talk series, the Reconati Kaplan talk series. And in our talks, what we try to do is bring together um, leading thinkers, uh, entertainers, intellectuals, academics, um, and to have them discuss topics that are of um, particular relevance to the world and to our audience. And in those conversations, we'll often ask a moderator to come and engage in conversation with um, the, the person or people who are giving the talks. So uh, those people um, usually come uh, as volunteers. Uh, they're people who, like you, have uh, experience speaking with people and have um, knowledge and, and information to bring of their own. And um, we would love to host you on our stage one day um, uh, in that capacity. And uh, as I said, we have a full season of those talks coming up, including a number of uh, really exciting talks this uh, this summer. Anything let get loused up that didn't work? I mean, everything sounds so great. Didn't you ever have anything that didn't work? 
Oh, well, listen, the pandemic was really tough, um, and I'm not going to lie about that. It was um, devastating to so many members of our community. People got sick. Of course, there were people who lost their lives, which was um, as devastating an outcome as, as one can imagine. As an institution, like a lot of cultural institutions, we were forced to make some very difficult decisions about personnel. But what we decided to do during the pandemic, which is how we try to confront all um, uh, challenges that we face, was we decided that we were going to take whatever lemons we were handed and, and turn them into lemonade. And, oh, my um, God, you sound so wonderful. Nothing uh, goes wrong. Trying. You just sound so wonderful. No, it's, you know, things go wrong, but when things go wrong, they also present opportunities, and that's how we try to view them. Okay. I would like to view this as a possibility to come there one day, and I want to thank you for coming on for me because so many of us know and love the 92nd Street Y, but we don't exactly know what it is. So you have helped us, and I, you're going to get stuck with me one day when I'm going to come by and ask you how I can help and what I can do. Well, it would be an honor to have you. It would be an honor to host any of your listeners. And uh, I hope we have the opportunity soon to see you in person and uh, to speak more about all the great things that are happening here on 92nd in Lexington. Thanks, Seth. Thank you very much for coming on, honey. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, I have now done a two-minute break so that the station can make some money. And now I just want to tell you some dish. Whoopi Goldberg once told Arsenio Hall that early on she worked as a beautician in a morgue. And when the funeral director stuck his friend in place and the body moved, she became so frightened that she said, I fainted. I was looking for stories from the early days because they struck me as funny. When she was young and innocent, Sophia Loren, who then spoke little English, was taught bad, bad words by bad, bad Sinatra, whose next lesson was instructing her to drop them in casual conversation. Jim Carrey, he told Entertainment Today, and he told me, that in third grade, in Toronto's Blessed Trinity School, a girl was two feet taller. He's now 6'2". She'd pick me apart, he says. When one day I wound up with a bloody nose, I took a swing at her, and I couldn't even reach her. Okay, I'm on to other things. Tales from Annapolis, recalls Jimmy Carter, class of 47, he was hazed by his upperclassmen because, as a plebe, he refused to sing Marching Through Georgia. I mean, what would he refuse that? He, he sells peanuts, for God's sakes. Jerry O'Connell said, once I gave my friend a fake scratch-off ticket that said he won $10,000, he was so excited, he bought everyone at the bar, total strangers, drinks. I later had to reimburse him, reimburse him for the whole tab because I'd made up the whole thing. Woody Harrelson, pretending to be a gunman, pointed a pistol at a rattled 
Sean Penn. Sean later paid him back. He invited Woody to a party. He put Woody in a car and drove 40 miles into Australia's outback. He then pretended to get stuck, and when Woody got out to push, he sped off, leaving the guy all alone, stranded at night with no money, no food in the outback. Oh, I think that was sort of clever. Brad Pitt once told the National Enquirer, When I was in fourth grade, in school, we made a plan to meet in this girl's garage and to kiss our first kisses. It took me, he said, half an hour to get the courage to go. But I went. I went right up to her. I kissed her, and then, terrified, I ran home. Obviously, he's gotten over his terror because he's had a few wives. The late bad boy designer, Alexander McQueen, was a mischief maker. He admitted he'd once drawn an image of a male sexual organ, and he drew it inside the Prince of Wales's jacket, the jacket that he himself had made at Savile Row for Alexander McQueen, and it made him smile every time the prince was on the news. So now, we go on. George Clooney is a well-known prank specialist. He loves to do dirty things to people. On Ocean's Eleven, when they were filming it, they said that to watch when you open a door, a bucket of water could fall on your head. George Clooney had propped it up at the top himself with his own hands. Also, he has been known to put tacks on the chair right in your seat. He also once let a rabbit loose in your room, and Brad Pitt cluelessly drove a car with a sign that George Clooney had stuck on it that said, small penis aboard. What can I tell you? These are not my things either, the things I have gathered. Rene Russo, in high school, I was skinny, 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 skinny also taller than all the boys. I know what it's like to be made fun of. I don't feel I've ever gotten out of high school. Well, in L.A., he was making a San Francisco flight. That's Nicolas Cage. He got on the PA system. He identified himself as the captain and he announced he was having a seizure. This is not funny. He thought it was. The crew saw no humor in the stunt, and on touchdown, he was met by authorities. What they did with him, God knows. Rolling Stone magazine once printed the fact that Johnny Rotten visited the Ramones backstage in London. The band offered him a beer. He didn't know 
that they dribbled some of their pee in it as a little joke. These are not stories I have made up. These are stories I have collected about the high-class big stars. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ugh. In the early 70s, in the early 70s, he calls it the most embarrassing moment of my life, pointing to a seafood platter that emanated from out of his heavy Austrian accent was the phrase, I will have that crap cocktail. He obviously meant to say crab, and it didn't quite come out properly. Well, we've got lots of these things, but I don't know whether I should give all to you Maybe I'll give you one more. Joe Boredom, who's our president temporarily, and Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi, made age the new inn. So now comes the book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. Yeah, a highly judgmental book. Unapologetic. Honest accounting of all the things our elders are doing wrong, like maybe them. The title is longer than the book, which claims studios love golden vets with silver hair. So we go onward with some of them. This book says that to train kitsch for kvetch is easy. And to go outside your same antique circle, since intergenerational friendships improve your well-being. You color your hair? Uh Uh-uh. Inky black roots. Telegraph, I'm desperate. Only give it a quickie shot with brown powder if your colorist is as good as Diane Sawyer. Her colorist, that is, and forget your chorus of aches and pains. If you get a bit older, limit health talk to one single cocktail, which is exactly what I would like to have when I get off this program. And let me tell you, you can listen to me, if you will, every Sunday 1 to 2 p.m. on radio station 770. That's W-A-B-C. And I thank you very, very much for listening. I love you all. I wish you would say the same about me. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.